Welcome to uh, ConCon, Consciousness Conversations. Uh, I'm DR. And I'm Ben. Uh, we are consciousness enthusiasts coming to you live from the Science of Consciousness Conference 2023 in Tarmina, Italy. Uh, and it was a big day today. It was a long day. It's a very <laughs> long, big, varied uh, day with lots of ideas thrown at us. I took an incredibly large number of notes from maybe half of the things that we saw. Half of the things sort of really struck me, and then half of them were kind of uh, missable slash problematic slash I don't know. I'm noticing in my notes I have a section entitled Microtubules, and I just <laughs> left it completely blank. <laughs> Um, well, maybe we should, maybe we should start there. Microtubules? Well, we could start okay. with that. Cause so the whole, the er, the morning session was, um, all quantum, uh, stuff. And I had some elucidating understandings, which is, um, this guy, Travis Craddock presented his stuff was actually kind of interesting. He talked about how, yeah. um, what is it? Phenylethylamines? Phenylethylamines, yeah. Yeah, uh, psych psychedelic um, things actually bind to microtubules. Um, and then uh, Stuart Hameroff, who is the founder of this conference and an anesthesiologist and stuff, we learned his whole history with consciousness, which is that he and Roger Penrose are kind of the fathers of this whole quantum movement. So it's yeah. no surprise that this consciousness conference is like very heavily influenced by um, all of this quantum stuff. Um, and he gave a long presentation that was um, very intense. And, and we touched on the quantum aspect in our, our last uh, episode where we said that people were debunking it. <laughs> Yeah. And that kind of <laughs> So people were people were bunking it this time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, although I Jim Al Khalili who spoke yesterday also spoke sure, and sure. his bits were he I mean, he was sort of saying like, yes, we think that, you know, quantum effects. So quantum effects being that like the same types of mechanics that we see it, at play in an electron have influence in um uh, a cell. And and yesterday he sort of presented that it seems like if there there should be quantum effects in the way DNA divides or recombines, and it doesn't, it, like it seems like the cells have figured out a way to avoid them, basically. To suppress the quantum yeah. effect, specifically tunneling, because it would cause mutations uh, when, when DNA splits. And so I, I said, during the, during the session, I had this moment where a light clicked on for me of like the quantum... Thing, and I said, like, oh, I think I could maybe steel man their argument a little Let's bit. Let's hear it. Let's so hear the I man. think that it, I, I would say that what they're saying that, um, so I think the quantum stuff is inherently, and at the end of his presentation, he was like very much not trying to hide this, is very much like a panpsychist type view, even though they might eschew that label, where they, they say that like quantum effects are primarily conscious and that consciousness arises from those things and that the hard problem goes away. I think I had a quote from him about it. Um, you, you know, honestly, well, maybe I'll, I'll let you continue your steel man. I'm, I was confused by that specifically where they fell on the sort of the panpsychist. Uh, yeah. Cause it's, it seems to me like they're, they're very, they're very pan that, that like, because quantum stuff feels, you know, underneath or before kind of matter or life or whatever that that's, that, 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 oh, you have 
experience because you have consciousness because of this thing. But I, I think what they're sort of saying is that there are all sorts of interesting things happening inside of a neuron that are more complex than just like a binary action potential of that neuron firing or not. And some of this data um, seems to be um, getting stored in um, these microtubules, things like memory, or like there's like more complexity in the way a neuron is firing um, than maybe has met the eye in the past, right? Um, and so it's like, aha, consciousness, right? And I think, so to me, that's the, the steel, and, and it's sort of like this orchestration of quantum effect is maybe happening beyond a single neuron or beyond an area of a microtubule, and that that, you know, quantum movement um, is like moving throughout the brain somehow as an orchestration of, of consciousness. To me, this seems, and based on all the other debunking folks, this seems like quite far-fetched in terms of quant the quantum effects being the primary mover. And to me, it makes more sense that like, there's so much complexity inside of a neuron that is helping it decide what to fire, when to fire. And then the neuron is kind of capping that complexity in a binary trigger, right? And then that, and then in then clusters of neurons and then the whole brain also have like similarly huge complexity. And he actually makes a comparison to this that if you, um, if you added up all the microtubule connections or whatever inside of a neuron, they are about the same as the number of connections between neurons in a brain as like two parallel structures. Um, and so my sense was, but anyway, my takeaway was that like, this seems like an unnecessary level of abstract, like thinking about the neurons is still probably the most valid level to think about. Yeah. Okay. For, a few for, things for, for our purposes. For, for one, I feel like these people, if you called them panpsychists, would shudder with horror. <laughs> I, I have a feeling. I'm, yeah. It wasn't super clear, but I have a feeling that they say that they think they're distinct. And we've talked about panpsychism before, uh, which is basically, and there's a lot of panpsychist stuff at the conference this time. Panpsychism is basically just like everything is conscious, every electron, you know, every rock, and you know, we are just manifestations of that. Yeah, and, and I guess Hameroff sort of had this story where um, he's he's watching uh, Penrose do something really special with some sort of unifying math thing, and he and he's, Penrose basically says something about consciousness needing like really small scale, really high hertz oscillations or something like. That. And he's like, I know, I have just the thing for you. It's microtubules, which, as you say, is sort of this yeah. like structure embedded inside uh, uh, neuronal cells. And this was the beginning of his real core interest in consciousness, I think. Um, Hameroff, he was like an anesthesiologist grad student or something, anesthesiology grad student. And so, like, he's been riding this horse for a really long time. Yeah, one thing that I find really strange and I haven't seen, hadn't seen before is they're trying to create, like, um, EKGs that run up to, yeah. like, terahertz scale, yeah. which is... I mean, you know, in the computer industry, that is not a term that ever gets thrown around, right? Like, it kind of stops at Well, and hertz. a normal EKG is what? Like, were they saying, like, tens of hertz? Yeah, yeah. So this would be, like, an order of, what, a million or something? <laughs> no, more. I mean, it's a, Terra was, is, like... Um, Mega is a thousand? Giga is... Mega is a million. Or it's 10 to the 20. Or, oh, wow. Wait, no, 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 10. I don't know. We have to look it up. It's it's a like a very large yeah number, <laughs> an incredibly large number of of hertz. Think yeah. about like you know kilobyte yeah. thousand megabytes oh, yeah, yeah, million, yeah, yeah. Uh, gigabyte is a billion, and I guess terabyte is the next Trillion. one. Yeah, yeah. 
so that's that's big. That's wow. a lot. That's very fast. And I, I don't understand. Although they kept making the point that anesthesia sort of deadens those super super fast resonance frequencies, yeah. but I don't. I have I have no basis whether to know that that is like. I have I have no background in that, so I, I can't say if it's. Um, yeah the 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 feeling that I got. I, so I in in one level I was like compelled more than in the past where it seemed like this is just throwing a mystery at a mystery. I'm like, okay, they're doing some hard science about the, the, the microtubules and stuff, and there seems to be some activity that's happening there. On the other hand, this sort of feels like jumping to quantum mechanics and relativity over overstepping, say, like classic um, Newtonian physics, which are super useful for doing a lot of basic calculations. Like, I'm interested from a consciousness level of understanding like well, why the ball rolls down a hill, not why the superpositions of the, <laughs> the electrons in that ball do certain things at certain yeah. times. I, I mean, I, I guess to echo kind of what you said before, if you kind of want to find a spookiness in the brain, maybe even a spookiness that's only in the human brain or in yeah. highly evolved mammals, um, and that sort of it seems like the driving factor for a lot of this stuff, wouldn't it be great if we could find that magical secret sauce that only is in these resonant frequencies uh, in the human brain tissue and in nowhere else. And that explains everything, you know, that's spooky and magical about consciousness because we found the spooky bit, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, on the total flip side of this, probably. On the other why, side of the fence. Why don't you introduce <laughs> Anil Seth and his, his stuff? Yeah. So he gave a keynote. Um, I, just, I just was blown away. I feel that, do you think these will be posted, these talks? This was, it was definitely recorded. Uh, yeah, I think, I think so, yeah. Worth watching. I, I don't know how, like, how similar it is to any of his other recent talks or like his TED Talk. Um, but yeah, reality is a controlled hallucination. What we experience, the quality of what we experience originates from within. It is a model of sort of the, um, you know, the, the things that are going there out in the world. By the time they get to us, they sort of cross modes into electrical impulses. So we're making sense of just electricity in the brain and we're hallucinating a whole rich world, but it's all happening inside of us, right? And of course, it can also be mistaken, right? We have optical illusions where no matter what anyone tells you about how this optical illusion works, that uh, these two color patches are actually the same, or the dress is red yeah. in, uh, or blue, blue and gold or whatever, you're not gonna see it any differently than you did before because that mental model is very sticky yeah. and it's based on this really, really sticky prior that you've built up over your whole life. And these are so powerfully dem dem demonstrable. Like he did a bunch on the screen, um, you know, the classic ones that you've seen, you know, the, the dress that Ben mentioned that some people think is black and blue. You thought it was black and blue, right? I yeah. see it as white and gold. Um, th this, uh, you know, after I had been learning about some of this, um, I was playing this game, Breath of the Zelda, Breath of the Wild, and it's an open world game and you, the, the guy is adventuring around and there's like things that sparkle a little bit. And it'll be like, oh, this is like a little shrub that you can collect or uh, here's like a, a mushroom that you can cook later. And it's like important items. Like you can't do that to everything in the game, but certain things like sparkle. And I was like, oh, that's and, and I just was like thinking about tying this to like I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's like sort of like life when you explore. But that's so silly. I mean, things kind of sparkle that are important to you. And then the more I started paying attention to my own experience, I was like, this is exactly how I pay attention to the world. They don't sparkle, but like I'm noticing things that are important and they're like standing out very loudly because I have this bottom up like 
background perception going. It's like, hey, if you see that thing that's really important to you, recognize that logo, see that, you know, a, the face of that celebrity that you know on a magazine or whatever, you're, you're constantly like screening for those things and, and they're jumping out. Yeah, I thought he made, uh, so he had, he had a few big points. He, he's, number one, he, I think he's good at branding. He's very eloquent, uh, charismatic, he's a good speaker. And one of his sort of brandings that I think is genius is to um, create something called the real problem. Yeah. To contrast Chalmers' hard, hard and easy problems. And basically the real problem is sort of, let's go beyond the neural correlates of consciousness, the easy problem, and let's find sort of um, causal or mechanistic explanations, functional explanations, phenomenological explanations uh, that can connect sort of neuronal firing patterns and actual uh, qualitative experience. Which, um, I mean, you've read the book. I think it, it's an interesting question to say, like, what even is, how, how do you even go beyond statistical correlation into, like, actual functional mapping? I think that creates a, a very, like, not hard, hard as the hard problem hard, but it's still yeah. a hard problem. Um, but at least maybe it seems more tractable. Well, and I think that you can study each of these problems, like, you know, faces popping out of at, from clouds at you or whatever as individual systems. So he contrasts, and I think we talked about this in the podcast a couple times ago, a quote from this article that he had written about this, but um, he, co he compares this to the study of the nature of life, vitalism, and that, you know, eventually people just sort of stop talking about what makes something alive or not because they'd broken down what it meant to be alive into all of these subsystems of digestion and, you know, cognition, reproduction, whatever. And um, so that, that we can kind of break these subsystems down in ways that will be meaningful and, um, you know, elucidating and such that the, the, the hard problem would disappear. Evaporate in a puff yeah. of metaphysical smoke, <laughs> I think is what he said. He wrote a, you know, he wrote a funny paper. I love this title, The Strength of Weak IIT. <laughs> so he kind of uh, disregarded IIT, but then said, well, actually, a weaker form might actually be useful because we do do metrics, right? Yeah. Um, IIT is uh, Integrated Information Theory, which we've talked about a few times. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think he made a lot of important points, and I think more... I mean, the biggest standout thing to me was how fruitful the line of reasoning is. There's sort of like, once you start asking the right questions, I feel like there's all this low-hanging fruit that you can run experiments, run simulations, and quickly learn a lot of things. So I feel like he's tugging on the right thread. He's asking the right questions. It's very clear to me to see this because, well, his research has been super fruitful, right? Yeah. He has this you know, lab that's just going crazy with this like really cool stuff. Yeah, and of course, um, Stuart came up, Stuart Hamroff came up to like badger him with a question and basically be like, you know. Well, yeah, so, so like, yeah, Neil Seth was like, vitalism is dead, no one believes that crap anymore. And, and Hamroff goes up, he's like, well, actually, I'm a quantum proto-vitalist, so like, it's not dead. I'm, I'm, a, I'm still vitalist. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he was like, consciousness came first, and he's like, well, I'm not, I think we're on different sides of this or something. It was very yeah, different. Yeah, he's like, we're, we're on different sides of the fence. I think it was a very, um, yeah polite way to, to say, like, agree to disagree. <laughs> um, so I think there were some good nods today. Sometimes there's this sense of, you know, uh, consciousness kind of being preeminent, of, like, humans somehow being 
we like reached the moment to like for uh, to allow this conscious energy that had already existed to flower into existence or whatever. And I think there are a lot of great um, discussions today about like the evolutionary value of consciousness, which again like rebuts the hard problem, which would say that like why do we have any reason to be conscious at all? It's like well it's really helpful to be survive, to like be conscious in the way that we're conscious. And so the next talk was, well, j um, just to linger on that, that, like, yeah, I guess inherent in the zombie argument is that there's no functional use for consciousness, right? That's yeah. how you, ha a zombie can be a zombie because the, well, consciousness just, sit, it's an epiphenomenon, yeah. right? It sits on top, has no functional use. And I think Anil Seth is saying, well, well wait a second, like, there's clear advantages to having consciousness, having the experience of quality yeah. and so forth. Yeah. So, and it, which I think dovetails perfectly into this Nicholas Humphrey talk. So, um, I'm kind of surprised I had not heard of this guy. Cause I looked yeah. at his book list and it was really impressive. He's, he's at Cambridge. Um, and he's got a brand new book, um, called sent, sent, am I saying it right? Sentient, sentience, yeah, um, sentience. Sen sentience sentience, <laughs> sentience. let's go with that <laughs> um and he this is some like a very meaningful line of thought that i've tried to push myself through many times which is like thinking about the need for cognition from like the single cell you know very prime primeval primordial state up through to like how humans would use it right and so he had some like really cool examples and diagrams of like you know, you're this organism and you like, let's say you just have a, a boundary and parts of that boundary are getting stimulus that it wants and parts of that boundary are getting stimulus that it doesn't want. And it sort of figures out how to respond at the local site. And eventually it can behave and interact much better as a, um, an organism if it, that becomes centralized. Right. Um, and that is sort of that sent that centralization is sort of a form of consciousness. I'm hopefully I'm doing him justice here. And then, there's a third layer of that, which is allowing for cognition to happen about the cognition, right? Sort of like meta awareness about that, um, about that um, consciousness that is becomes like the sentience. Does that? Or is yeah, that I, I will say one thing. Uh, also, like I think you might need to be speaking more into the more mic. into the mic. Yeah. Um, one thing you did say that I didn't really understand was these attractor states. Like when he's talking about this meta cognition yeah. stuff, I don't understand what that's about, but. The rest of it I, I thought was uh, great. And he lingered on a lot on this blindsight thing, right? Yes. Which I guess yeah, yeah, he yeah. worked on way back in the 70s. Yeah. Um, he had video from the 70s, which was really impressive, of this uh, monkey that had blindsight. Yeah. And, and talk about it like a, a nice uh, fruitful thread to pull on, right? I think so blindsight is basically there's two pathways in the brain, right? And one of them is very ancient. One of them is very um, like modern in terms of you know evolutionary time scales <laughs> and if you sever the modern one you can still like uh navigate and not bump into things but the person will be blind the person uh, the confabulator will be blind right if you ask that person can you see they'll be like no i can't see anything you throw a ball at their head and they'll dodge out of the way and then you say well how did you do that and be like i don't know i just guessed that something was coming after me and so the you that has senses does not it's it's uh it's empty it's black yeah but still you're able to see some other aspect of you that's not conscious and so this is a very interesting thing to sort of um piece apart right because it tells you a lot of very interesting things about like what consciousness is and does and what it 
is not. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And some of this stuff about hemispheric neglect and blindsight, we talked, I think we talked previously is, was some of the most interesting stuff that kind of got me excited. This is similar to like the split brain studies. Um, you know, you have something that's going on that's not available to your phenomenon, your phenomenological experience, um, your conscious experience, but that is part of your experience as an animal. Um, so I think in the end, he made some for this audience, quite provocative statements, which was, um, you know, I think a interesting thing with this crowd, probably more interesting. Oh, we were going to talk about the different. <laughs> there's a there's a uh, survey they sent out to everyone at the conference oh, yeah. to sort of pick their favorite theories, um, which we had not heard of most of these. Yeah, there's like, like eight, eighteen <laughs> of them. Um, some of them with pretty incredible names. I think a more interesting thing might actually be to survey everybody on like who is conscious, like is like does consciousness go to like an electron? Is it an ant? Is it a, you know, a turtle? Is it a monkey? Is it like, I think everybody there would have a spot where they're yeah. like, this is conscious and above and this is conscious and below. And then probably also like people have different opinions about uh, the, this guy's well. line in the sand, I, I do think was pretty spicy. He basically was saying, you know, birds and mammals, uh, everything else, not so much. Um, yeah. Well, and well, to be clear, I guess we should be clear. He did make a distinction between um, cognitively conscious and sentient. Yeah. And his mind sentience is cognitive consciousness plus subjective experience, aka qualia. Yeah. Um, and he, yeah, he's basically like, yeah, humans have it. Your dog has it. Uh, that frog over there? No, it is basically just reacting. Um, it has, a, you know, a, a control center, but it's uh, it's not like experiencing any subjective taste when it eats yeah. that fly, right? It's just doing it. In the same way, this monkey that had its uh, modern optical nerve or whatever um, cut, you know, it could pick up grapes, but it was just like the frog, like reactively, like yeah, know, eating a fly and. The monkey was tasting the grape, but not seeing the grape. And, yeah. the, and the, the frog neither sees nor tastes the fly. Yeah. And so that was sort of his line in the sand that I'm sure riled up a lot of people. But I, I, I kind of love when people throw out their spicy takes. Yeah. Uh, I think it's one of the things that makes this conference awesome. And I definitely going to read his new book. I, yeah. I was really impressed by this guy. He made a statement that he thought um, part of the need part of the way that this evolved was through being warm-blooded because there's something about temperature that allows you to have more neuronal transactions uh, per second. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to, to read the book. Um, what else do we want to talk about? Yeah, well, I will point out something about this distinction, which I hadn't really heard before, between the cognitive conscious and sentient. I think that actually adds back in some wiggle room for these zombies. Right, because you could say, aha, well, a zombie is cognitively conscious, right? It's like metacognating and stuff, but it's not feeling any of that. There's no subjective experience, right? I think the only issue is that, again, why are they such liars? Right? Well, they, I, think the, I think the metacognition is the sentience, right? Like, I think if, I think you I, couldn't, I, I think you'd have to be not reflective, totally mechanistic. I, I think you couldn't behave like a human. Are you saying this on behalf of what you think or yeah, what you on think he what thinks? I think, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I think he yeah. would I think he would agree. Well, he did he did mention like so he showed like an amoeba. Yeah. And he said, "Okay, it's sort of reacting to external stimuli." Yeah. And they said, "Ah, but it's better actually if it has a control center and it forwards the sort yeah. of 
this, uh, the stimuli sort of in a different form to the control center and then determine if you want to do that reaction or not. Yeah. That I considered like the, and then you drew a loop onto that, right? Yeah. That loop inside the control center is kind of like the metacognition. Like yeah, yeah, but that, that was that was sen- that's what that's what he was saying was. Oh, I don't think so. Because then he know, mentions okay. that there was like a hundred generations of human evolution, so he thinks there's like proto-humans that actually were not sentient. Uh, well, I guess we'll have to read the we'll book. Read the book. And, we'll and, read the book. We'll read the book and come back. Yeah. Um. All right. We. So the. The the next talk, I liked a lot better than you did. Yeah, he was. Um, I thought he was a philosopher, but then he kept saying he wasn't a I philosopher. I think everyone kept like saying, "Well, <laughs> as a philosopher," and he's like, "No, no, no, I'm not a philosopher." Um, but <laughs> what I thought was really interesting was he said um, that people say people talk about the unity of conscious experience, and it's this like one you know amazing like unified thing, and the one best thing you can say about it is that it's like so like specific and and like un- indivisible and he's like mm, maybe it is kind of actually divisible and he sort of started breaking down chunks of phenomenal experience and he talked about something specific to color and i didn't actually quite understand the study that he talked about but it's something about three by three matrices and like that that's when i i sort of jumped off the ship okay mentally i, I think where he started i thought was really good so he basically was saying okay thomas nagel said what is it like to be a bat you know, is it, and then he sort of defined consciousness as it is something that it is like to be something. And this guy, this not a philosopher guy, Kevin, um, was saying, was complaining that how, non- how non-scientific that question is. I think that was kind of Nagel's point, actually, that there's no science that could get at this. But then he was saying, well, wait a second, let's, let's like at least come up with a clear definition that could lead to experimentation. Some yeah. sort of scientific, uh, scientification about what is it like to be anything. And he, he used uh, human adults, squeezing sponges, and other things. And then when he got to the color experiment, I just, I don't know, I just tuned out. Because well, I think at a certain point, like, this not a philosopher, philosophy guy, like, it's just so many definitions all the way down that I start to lose the plot. Well, the Matrix thing I thought was interesting because he was, he was, all that was trying to do was saying that you could inject some uh objectivity into a subjective experience that like people seeing red are seeing things within some sort of like a color space that was sort of somewhat objective i think that's what he was trying to get at but it was mostly just a a, a warm-up example for you know looking at he had this graph and it was sort of like control of information flow and the speed of information um, and that he had different types of things in different vectors there. So you, in the top you had knowledge, in the bottom you had things that you don't experience. So knowledge was like proprioception, which was kind of controversial. Like people had weird thoughts about and that. Neil Seth had some yeah. thoughts about that. Um, and then he had like, you know, blood pressure and di- digestion is not experienced. And then you had um, occurrent experiences, which were like taste, smell, vision. And then um, states, which were like hunger, sadness, happiness. And he's like, it's not important where these things are on the graph. It's more important that like they could be placed somewhere and like may quantified and put within a, a specific space. And I, I think like I, um, I kind of like this idea of the thinking about our emotions as like an API into our 
um, you know, like the way an API is like something a software developer would use to connect to a protocol or connect to a, an outside program. And so, you know, if I've got these positive types of emotions that certain signals can send tracks down and, and I've got these negative emotions that other ones can use and you know, those are the levers that essentially my body can pull to try and get my brain to notice things. Um, and that those are, you know, evolved and somewhat consistent. Um, I just thought it was interesting to try. And which, kind of which by the way, uh, kind of leads into the next one, which I, I think that's the correct take on emotions. Right. And the next guy seemed to paint a picture that mood. Uh, oh, well, you're skipping over the other guy who was really not memorable, but the, Oh, yeah. <laughs> so memorable. I didn't write yeah, yeah, a single yeah. thing about him. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, guy. Um, yeah, no, the the mood, the mood, the mood one. We can skip straight to that because that was like, uh, he was talking about the consciousness of mood and that like, you're in a bad mood, but it's not, it's for no reason. And I'm like, I think it might be for a reason. I think there's reasons <laughs> for that. I mean, he he's yeah. Well, this guy was a philosopher, probably. Yeah. And uh, he says some poetic things. I thought mood is the air in which experiences take place. Uh, mood suffuses all experience. I think that is interesting to think about. I think it's true. I, I mean, I think, but this is how you just define emotions, basically. It, yeah. it applies a sort of a valence um, to all possible decisions or actions you might take, which is why emotion causes you to act in one way and not another way. Yeah. And of course, your mood, insofar as it changes your qualitative subjective experience, is pretty interesting. But it's definitely doing that to move you in a certain direction, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I misunderstood. Again, it was it was so like philosophy as as just definitions of definitions of yeah, propositions. Yeah, and I I was kind of hoping that there was a a deeper message there. I mean, it was sort of like the title was just mood consciousness and like moods resent, represent our, it, it didn't really, it didn't feel like it had a message or a directive or like, well, it, like away. I do think there, there was a message that I just dis, totally disagreed with, which was that like, um, when you lump all the positive, uh, valence, uh, moods and emotions, that's happiness. And then all the <laughs> negative ones, that's unhappiness. And I just think, why would you do that? Yeah. Like, I mean, I also think, you know, it's not like the end goal to be happy all the time. I think it's to have meaning is what drives most people. Yeah. Right. Um, but even that's arguable. But to just cleave things into happiness, unhappiness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think that's a weird dichotomy. And it didn't really resonate <laughs> with my terahertz frequencies. Yeah. <laughs> Your uh, your quantum uh, orchestration is yeah my, my is quantum orchestration was not not good. Um, do we want to say anything about the? Yeah, so, so well, I do actually. We went to um, so these these were the keynotes and plenaries. They were amazing. These guys were and uh, they're me mega qualified, really insightful stuff. Then we went to the. Do they have papers attached to these? Went to the small sessions. Some of them, I don't. Like, yeah, and, and we went to the one on machine consciousness. I was very excited about this, being an AI researcher, and I just uh, didn't find much of value. Yeah, I, I was hoping, I guess, it'd be a room full of AI researchers. Is the thing, right? Yeah. People uh, sort of like me, and it was no, it was like more people from outside AI looking in, and I think giving takes that just uh, 
either I thought were just wrong or I thought weren't in a useful direction. Yeah. And, you know, I saw this last year a bunch. It's, you know, this is such a, a wide tent of a field and you've got people that I really like deep thinkers in the space, you know, somebody like Julia Tononi, who's refer is like referenced a ton of times, like hasn't been to this conference that I know, maybe used to come back in the day. Um, you have a lot of, a, a wide tent of, um, of thinkers in this space and the, which, and it attracts, so it attracts like people interested from all over the place. One of this, one of the guys who presented was just a, like how did his label was like as an ind an independent researcher and he's just like a guy who likes to write about stuff i mean uh and he came and gave a presentation and was sort of i don't know not super well thought out and i i think there's just um yeah yeah it's a i don't think you i think you could be an independent researcher and do good work oh absolutely but yeah i think that the variance in the mean, probably, of uh, independent researchers, their work is probably uh, higher variance and lower mean. Like, yeah. it, I mean, I think just being at an institution, being around other people is helpful for the sort of the constant implicit peer review of like, yeah. are you on the right track yeah. or not? Yeah, so, you know, there was, it was like a bunch of titles that sounded interesting. And I would say, again, not a lot of like takeaways necessarily. Yeah, it almost seemed like um, they were interesting talks that at some point would be like, oh, yeah, wait, this is a machine consciousness uh, session. So let me throw in a slide <laughs> that it has, like, has really murky points relating it to all the rest of the things I just yeah. said. But that being said, do you think that these papers were lumped together as like that's after a great the question, fact, actually. or did they like apply to be yeah, in the machine consciousness yeah. session? That'd be an interesting thing to find out. Maybe they all got mislabeled by some area chair <laughs> and they're like, oh crap, I'm in the machine consciousness section. Or they just had like a group of people and they're like, I guess we'll call this machine. Like, Cause if you look down the list of other, uh, of these concurrent sessions, they're like, they're all, one of them's just called the hard problem. Yeah. <laughs> so it could make sense. Quantum approaches, panpsychism. But I will, I will say this about the day. I, I think just from the keynotes and the plenary sessions alone, I got my money's worth yeah. from the yeah, cost sure. of registration. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think we might go a little easy on the <laughs> on the concurrent sessions <laughs> if the rest of the week, but there is a there is a whole one on psychedelics on Friday, which I'm pretty stoked about. So, um, yeah, last year there was a lot of psychedelic sessions, psychedelic content. Maybe it was more of like people in the states. And there's a lot of interest in that, but um, less. I'm noticing less of that this, this year, more stuff about, um, quantum stuff. And what was the other thing that, felt, Oh, a lot, AI. Of, a lot chat of GPT stuff. gets yeah. name dropped almost every, yeah. uh, hour. Cool. Should we call it there? I think we should call it. All right. Day two. Thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Uh, you can follow along, uh, the podcast at concon.show or meet us in Termina or meet us in Termina. Yeah. <laughs>